On today's episode, our all-Asian panel reviews Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and discusses fictionalizing real-life events, which is a topic plucked from the themes of the movie. What up, what up, listeners? Welcome to You Better Represent podcast, proudly part of the Sonar Network. Each week, we explore representation in cinema by reviewing a minority-led film with members of that underrepresented community and debate a cultural topic plucked from the movie's themes. Joining me for today's show is Toronto comedian and writer Leonard Chan. Hello, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to have you on as well to uh, talk about this movie, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, is Quentin Tarantino's ninth movie. Now, usually we review a minority-led film. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino is not a minority, but <laughs> um, there is... There is controversy around representation in this film, which is why we are talking about it specifically Asian representation and the depiction of Bruce Lee. But we will get to that. Um, first, let's talk about the movie itself. So uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about a faded television actor and his stunt double who strive to achieve fame and success in the final years of Hollywood's golden age. It is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, um, produced by... Um, from what I can tell, three white people, and um, starring all white people. Um, so uh, <laughs> that includes Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, his stuntman, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, and Mike Moe as Bruce Lee. Now, um, you know, before we jump into the representation stuff, just overall, um, Leonard, what are your thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? You know, I actually really, really liked it. Uh, oh, I know, <laughs> yeah, like I have uh, friends who who I trust who watched it and they're like, I hated it. I hated it so much. And I was like, oh, I guess I shouldn't watch it. And then um, I had one friend who I actually trust a lot. He's my writing partner. And he was like, he loved it. Uh, and I always like, you know, I meant to like sit down and watch it at some point. But I was like, it's also two hours and 41 minutes long. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, it takes a... Basically, it took this. It took you being like, we're going to review this movie for this podcast. I'm like, okay, fine. I have to do it for work now. Okay. <laughs> so I finally watched it. And yeah, it was really good. Like, it's not... I think if you're like a Tarantino fan of... Like, if you're like a 90s Tarantino fan, like, it's you're going to be like, what is this? What am I watching? <laughs> because it's very different. Like, it's, it's a kind of... It's like definitely like a movie from a much more mature filmmaker, I think. Um, uh, and, and like the themes that it tackles, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, somebody who's like, yeah, well, I guess I'm being put out to pasture. I guess I'm being like, I'm not as good as I was. I guess like, this is the end of my career, I guess, whatever. Uh, you know, very, uh, you could tell this is like the work of, you know, an older director, uh, <laughs> who might be in the same phase of his career. Um, but like the movie works, I think the movie really works. I, I mean, it's I mean, it does classic Tarantino stuff. Like it does, you know, it plays with like uh, it plays with time. You know, uh, you know, uh, it, as it tells its narrative, like the story shape is there, but like obviously there's you know there's a lot of like shifting and like this and that and the other thing. Uh, you know, the sort of like dialogue that maybe you would associate with Quentin Tarantino movies, like you know, the, the quarter pounder with cheese or the quarter royale. What was it? The royale. Which he stuff like none of that is really there. 
Um, yeah. It's not the same. Like, it's not... It's more about character. It's more... Uh, like, Jackie Brown-esque than, than Pulp Fiction-esque, if that makes any sense. So, uh, the funny thing is, so, you almost perfectly, like, described me of, like... And it's fascinating to hear this because I kind of need to understand the perspective of people who like this movie because I actually think it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I was yeah. like, what is going on on this movie? <laughs> um, well, what did you what did you not like about it? Like, what was... what was? Uh... I thought it was, you know, you say he's more mature now. I think he's more self-indulgent. It's It was like a movie without an editor. It was like... It did not. Well, it is. It is two hours and forty-one minutes long. So yeah, <laughs> it was. It was way too long. And you know, it, it's funny because I, I, I actually do like Tarantino movies in general. I like Tarantino movies, although I didn't love Pulp Fiction, but I, I am a fan of his '90s work. And um, I just thought it was. It was self-indulgent. It really made no sense. I felt like it was. Well, maybe here's here's something that might help people understand why I hate this movie. I hate like self-indulgent <laughs> Hollywood movies where it's like movie makers making movies about making movies. And this is like mm. I, I felt like if you if you weren't alive back then or if you didn't know that much about Sharon Tate and all that stuff, it, it feels like he's trying to to subvert expectations, but with the expectation that you already have those expectations. But, like, if, if you're not from Hollywood, I don't have those expectations to subvert. I'm just like, give me a good movie. Instead, I got some weird foot fetish three-hour, like, I, I, like, there's very few movies. I would say in the past decade, there's only, like, two or three movies that have made me, like, visibly upset where my boyfriend had to talk me down because I was just so upset. There's this, and then there's that, uh, oh, what's, uh, Something Bird. That uh, that one that won the Academy Award, the um, the Greta, the I don't know, Lady Bird or something. Oh, Lady Bird! Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't love Lady Bird. And so those are, these are like the two movies that just made me so upset. I was literally screaming, and then my boyfriend had to talk me down. This one, I just felt I was like, this is so self indulgent. I, it's funny because the actual premise of the film and the reason why he wanted to do the film, I thought would have made an interesting movie. I think, you know, in a Reese, he said the idea came because he like, you know, overheard this like aging actor, like sitting down and talking to his, to his like longtime set man. He's like, oh, that's a, you know, that's an interesting relationship to explore. And I would have been like, yeah, that is an interesting relationship to explore. But like. I don't. I don't think it really. I don't know, Leonard. I don't. I don't get this movie. I was visit like even honestly, even taking out the Bruce Lee stuff. I still think this is the worst movie <laughs> of the last decade. And then when it started to get nominated for like Academy Awards, I was like, okay, what is going on here? <laughs> like, this is just some bullshit. Is this based on like his other movies? Is this like a Lifetime Achievement Award? Because this movie cannot possibly be so that's why I'm very interested to hear your perspective because I was just like I and I'm predisposed to Tarantino movies and I'm like mm -hmm. I, I'm like you know what if you're gonna like subvert expectations and play around with like history you know maybe cast some non-white people outside of what you did to like Bruce Lee it's like the one historically accurate part of this movie is that everybody's white except for Bruce Lee who's a character yeah I mean, yeah, I, I honestly, that's 
I mean, there, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he already did the black exploitation thing, so I guess he didn't want to like revisit that with like those characters. Um, but like, I, I, yeah. I mean, certainly, if you didn't know who Sharon Tate was and the whole Roman Polanski story and the whole Charles Manson thing, like, I feel, yeah, that would definitely take away from your enjoyment of the story because, like, once you're like, oh, Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate, you're like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. Mind you, like, halfway through the movie, I was already suspecting. I was like, he's probably going to do, like, a Tarantino thing at the end and rewrite it, like, Inglorious Bastards, which is exactly what happened. But I was, like, okay with that because I kind of... It was one of those situations where I was like, oh, I hope I'm right, actually. Yeah. Because <laughs> I would actually prefer to see that. And then and then I saw it. And, and I know, like, that scene at the end, which is, like, so violent and yeah. stuff. Like, I bet you that probably ruined the mood for a lot of people. But, like, um, I liked it. And like I was literally like laughing when the flamethrower came out, and like, and my wife is sitting next to me in bed. She's like, "Why is this so funny?" And I was like, "He's a, he's killing with a flamethrower." And she's like, "That's like such a horrible way to die." And I was like, "Oh yeah, probably." But like, it's hilarious that he has the flamethrower. Like, that's so funny to me. You know. So, yeah. Um, the funny. Yeah, thing no. Is, the funny thing is, I'm I'm predisposed to Tarantino, and I'm also a character-driven person, so I do like character studies um, in movies. Yeah. So, and I I like gratuitous violence as well. So you would think this would be like the right thing for me. It just felt like maybe at two hours. I could have gone yeah. into it. It almost, it just felt like get, you know what? This reminds me of, this is going to be a weird analogy, but this reminds me of the second half of the Harry Potter um, series of books where I love the first three books because she still had an editor. And then yeah. by the time you do the fourth book, you're having these children's books that are like fucking 700 to a thousand pages long where the first book is like 180 pages. And you know what? They have the same amount of plot in them as the 700 goddamn page book. And I feel yeah, like- maybe, but I also liked all the Harry Potter books, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I like length does not really oh. deter me. Uh, you know, like um, it's not. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it did two hours and forty one minutes. I really, I, oh. I mean, right off the top, I was like, who has time to watch two hour forty one minute movie? But like when I was into it, I wasn't like, well, shit, I got a two hours and forty one minutes. Like, oh my god. I mean, I just watched like. I mean, I watched Endgame, and that was, like, three and a half hours or something nonsensical. So it's, like, whatever. Um, could he have used an editor? Sure. But, like, was there anything in there that I feel absolutely had to be cut? No. Yeah, you know? I, I just, like, there wasn't anything where I was like, oh, well, this is superfluous, or this wasn't, like, thought out. Like, this wasn't a deliberate choice that probably... That adds the, to, like, the movie. The foot scene? That could have been cut out. The weird, his weird foot fetish scene where she's just, like, showing her foot in the car. Like, that, like, I don't know. Oh, wait, wait, which one? The, uh, the, the teenager? Who yeah, brings... yeah, the the one where he's driving the, um, the hitchhiker, and then it's just, like, close-ups of her foot for, like, a very long time. Oh, you kept saying foot fetish scene, like, they're deliberately doing a foot fetish thing, and I was like, I do not remember a foot fetish thing. <laughs> yeah, they just did a lot of feet. That's all it was, right? Yeah, so, you know, like, the foot fetish wasn't part of the movie. It was just part of the director. So it was just like, okay, yeah. dude, like, ch chill out with your foot fetish, Quentin. Like, this is... It, <laughs> it felt like he was making his own, like, video foot fetish movie. I don't... 
I don't yeah. know, Leonard. It's, it's funny because you mentioned foot fetish, and I literally just saw an episode of AP Bio where, like, some <laughs> dude has, like, this crazy foot fetish where he dresses up each person's foot in, like, specific clothing. So I was just like, wait, what? Where did that? And I got the two things confused. I was like, that happened in Once Upon a Time Hollywood? <laughs> was somebody dressing up feet? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the thing is, I, I do think, like, this review probably would have been better if it was, like, directly after I saw it the first time. Because at yeah. that point, that was a few years ago, and I was, like, furious and I had, like, a lot of hot takes. And this time when I watched it, I had to multitask. I was, like, surfing there because I was just, like, I just can't. I just can't. I was, like, I didn't want the fury to come back. <laughs> but it, it reminded me why I was so furious. But I it couldn't bring the same level of fury um, to this movie <laughs> as I originally had it. But, yeah, it literally... Uh, probably if we had a list, I would put it as the second, my second most hated movie of like the 2010s. Like that's just, I wait. What was your most hated movie of 2010s? Lady Bird. Oh, okay. Oh, and then, um, you know what? To just and then the final of that trilogy of most hated movies is this thing called Eye of the Beholder about like. It was this thing starring, I think, Helen Mirren, and it was it was also award nominated. So I think partially it's when I hate movies so much and they're so terrible, but then they're getting such good reviews in these awards, and I'm just like, why? Because um, I have the whole beholder seemed like a really bad episode of like a bad TV show, um, and just these two movies, and especially this one, I was just like, oh my god, I just, uh. Anyway, that whole award season, the Fury just kept every time it got nominated for another award. I just wanted to strangle. I know that it sounds really weird that I'm this invested in my hatred of this movie, and that's before the Bruce Lee thing. So now let's jump into the whole Bruce Lee, okay, craziness. Um, well, yeah. what are your thoughts about the scene itself and his depiction? Okay, well, I mean, I'd heard. Really, this was like one of the only things I'd heard about the movie prior to me watching it. Like, like Asians were so mad <laughs> about the Bruce Lee thing. They're like, "What? There's no way that would happen." And I was like, eh, "Probably not." Like, Bruce Lee was a G. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but Bruce Lee beat up my dad. So, like, I'm like, whatever, oh. man. <laughs> it's fine. I'm fine watching him get beat up by a white dude. <laughs> Well, you're, so. you're, you're going to have to jump into that a little bit more um, um, for our listeners. Okay. As, as much as you can without upsetting your dad. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's funny. Like, basically, this is like ten, five, ten years ago. We just at dinner or something. My dad was like, did you ever tell you about the time I fought Bruce Lee? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you did what now? You fought Bruce Lee? And... Uh, and then my mom stepped in and was like, you didn't fight Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee beat the shit out of you. I'm like, oh, okay. That makes more sense. Because, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, my dad doesn't know any martial arts. I'm like, why are you fighting Bruce Lee? I've never seen you do a single martial arts move in my life. Like, why, why are you fighting him? So I, uh, Bruce Lee and my family, like, the Lee family and my family were, like, friends, like, back in, in uh in, in Hong Kong. Like, Bruce Lee's sister was really good friends with my dad's sister, and so then, like, they all just kind of hung out. And so, at one point, like, and, like, Bruce Lee came back from Hollywood. This is after, mm. this might be, like, right before Green Hornet, like, right after Green Hornet or right before Green Hornet. Um, he was married. He was with Linda at the time. He had Brandon. Like, my dad held Brandon in his arms. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, 
And then Bruce Lee basically told my dad, he was like, oh man, I've been like working on these moves and like if you do this, I will do this to you and then you'll flip three times in the air and then you'll hit the ground. And my dad was like, okay, whatever, Bruce. And <laughs> which, why would my, like, I mean, my dad kind of brought it on himself too, right? So, uh, so then he was like, so Bruce was like, yeah, just like, you know, attack me or whatever and I'll do this to you. And my dad's like, okay. And he just does the thing. And Bruce is like, flip, my dad flips like three times in the air, hits the ground. And I was just like, Oh, wow. I mean, I wasn't there, but I was just like, that's hilarious. But at the same time, but I'm like, in my mind, I was like, of course, of course, Bruce Lee can do that. He's like that good, which is why, obviously, I'm thinking there's no way like Brad Pitt beat him up like this stunt guy. Uh, I mean, yeah. But that being said, uh, you know, I'm like my dad doesn't only martial arts bruce lee why are you doing this shit to him man like that's a dick move so i don't mind (laughs) like it'd be one thing if he's like says it to like somebody who knows what they're doing i was like this is my dad you know he barely golfs (laughs) it's like why you why you why you fighting him (laughs) yeah you know the the interesting thing with the controversy around the depiction of bruce lee um, and for, for those who haven't watched the movie, it's, I guess this is like an anti-spoiler or reverse spoiler. Um, for No, or actually it's just a spoiler spoiler. What am I talking about? So if you haven't watched this movie, I'm about to spoil it for you. <laughs> yes, that is not an anti-spoiler. That's a spoiler spoiler. So um, Bruce Lee is depicted as kind of a jerk, you know, overly self-confident, um, cocky kind of, you know, Hollywood guy who... Uh, challenges uh, Brad Pitt's character to a fight, and then they yeah. kind of, it's kind of a draw, kind of not a draw. I don't know. Anyway, um, I, I mean, yeah, I, story checks out. Cocky guy who like, <laughs> you know, based on what my dad told me, story you know, checks out. I think I think why people were upset, and even Tarantino fans were upset, is like he's used Bruce Lee before. Like, as in, like, paying homages to him or, like, you know, like, with with Kill Bill using, like, the Bruce Lee outfit um, on the bride. And it just seems like he's sort of, like, it's sort of like he's used the memory of Bruce Lee for his own purposes for commercial games in the past. Yeah. um, For his own movies. And then when he depicts them, he doesn't take, like any type of care with that character and i think why why it sort of hit on a lot of like asian like asian americans and like asian canadians and asians around the world is it's just like it just sort of hit that nerve of like white people telling our stories which is like a whole other thing um yeah and it just it just really hit a nerve and he's just so unapologetic about it he has apologized to bruce lee's daughter but he basically said that's the only person he apologizes to because he understands like why she would be mad but everybody else he just said they could go suck a dick which is a gay man offends <laughs> you know what other that's way. fine i'm just <laughs> i mean like, you know what you're gonna make that move you gotta stand i mean that's cool that he stands by it i'm like i'm i can't i gotta respect that yeah you know it, it was a creative decision um yeah I honestly, I hate this movie for so many other reasons that the Bruce Lee thing was more an, an annoyance. I don't yeah. think my, unless it's subconscious, but I don't think so. Cause I hate this movie for so many other things. The Bruce Lee thing. I'm just like, yo dude, if you're going to literally like, you know, use Bruce Lee's ideas or pay homages to him in other movies, like why would you like do this to him? But I'm like, you know, and like I said, if if they just totally subverted all of history and made this a more diverse cast or something, 
But it's just like, no, you're going to... When when it's a legend like Bruce Lee, and when it's the only non-white character in a movie, and you have yeah. a history of, like, you know... I guess at the time he was seen as paying homage, but maybe he was just, you know, appropriating Bruce Lee at this point to, like, make money um, and just put, like, a white girl face on a Bruce Lee kind of movie. Um to not have the respect for him to represent him properly. I don't know. Like, I don't, like this, this will be our next segment about like fictionalizing real life. And it's like, so I don't want to jump into that part too much, but I'm like, listen, if there were other things around it, I, I could have been more okay with the depiction. It was just more the depiction combined with his history of movies, of martial arts, um, starring white people, and then, you know, that were clearly inspired by Bruce Lee's work. And then to have Bruce Lee as the only non-white character in this movie, and then to, like, character assassinate him, it was just, it was just a lot. But I hated this movie so much that that was maybe number 10 on my list of things. Number one is definitely that foot scene. I was like, excuse me, bitch. <laughs> like... Leave it on the cutting room floor. Like, I don't, you know, jerk off to it on your own time. Like, I don't need this, like, gratuitous. That's gratuitous feet? Close-ups of feet that had nothing to do with the story. Like, yeah. Well, I, I thought the scene was funny. I mean, I thought when, like, Bradley was like, I need to see your driver's license. I need to know how old you are. I mean, I dodged jail for this long. I ain't going to jail for you. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, to, you know, maybe appealing it back on the actual character side. I feel like maybe I'm so blinded by rage that I couldn't. Because like I said, I usually like character-driven movies. I just didn't really see, like, I was going and expecting, like, an exploration of a relationship between an actor and his stunt person. Because I, I did hear about that before. Yeah. And I was like, this is a unique angle. I have not heard this angle before. Um, yeah. But what, what were your thoughts about how those two characters developed in the central relationship? I thought it was great. I thought, like, the their friendship was very clear. I thought that, um, you, know, I, you know, obviously, like, the, the characters were different enough that I could see where there could be conflict and where they would, like, complement one another. And I thought, but it was really just, like, ultimately, like, they just remained friends through the whole thing. And I really found that to be nice. Mm. You know, um, where, you know, Cliff, like Brad Pitt's character was a lot more honest, was just like, yeah, this is who I am. This is what you get. Even though, like, there's all these rumors he killed his wife that were never resolved. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I liked, I liked that. Like, I liked, I liked them both. I liked both the characters. I liked, um, yeah. It just made sense. It, it worked. It worked for me. I mean, the whole movie worked for me, even though you hated it. I don't know. You know what? This is honestly, I didn't think I would like, I think maybe that was part of it too. Like my expectations were like fairly low. Because mm. I was told like by so many people that it was garbage. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, yeah. And then the one person, you know, my writing partner who really liked it. So I'm like, okay, good. I'm this is why he's my writing partner. Because <laughs> we have very <laughs> similar tastes. Um, and yeah, like the whole, and again, like if you didn't know about like the, the Charles Manson thing, like I can see how that would be very confusing because like when that, when they introduce that, like, it just kind of suffuses the whole film with an element of dread where you're like, oh, this is where it's going to go. Right? And, like, that, that's... It was interesting. Yeah, like, I feel like 
I kind of knew stuff, but probably pretty similar to like the general population. I was like, I'd heard, I'd heard of Charles Manson. I'd, I'd heard of these names. Uh, probably Roman Plansky. I've heard of him more for like sexual misconduct and sexual like yeah. assault and raping people more than for like some <laughs> part of this murder thing. But I was like, okay, maybe, you know, I was, so I had very loose associations with these names. Um, but yeah, I feel like without the, without that knowledge, which at least it, which is why it upset me. So I was like, I feel like you yeah. have to be like a Hollywood insider or like yeah. really care about the history of Hollywood because you can't subvert my expectations when I don't have any. Like, come on. Yeah. Jennifer. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see how that would be an issue. That being said, like, I, I don't know. I guess I, 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 I felt like the Charles Manson, Roman Polanski thing was a lot more common knowledge than I guess it apparently is. Uh, and I guess that same thing happened to Quentin Tarantino. We just assume this is far, probably common knowledge. Uh, but that being said, I mean, this is a movie about Hollywood, right? So like anybody watching it is going to be like, oh, okay. Like his target audience I, I mean, obviously he's trying to get like a, a wide audience, but like, but when you make a movie about making movies, like it's typically for the people who are making movies, which is partially probably why I also enjoyed it because I'm making movies. So, um, so like that to me was like, all right, like, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that's like relatable and familiar and, and so forth. Um, Roman Polanski, by the way, is the subject of one of, one of my favorite jokes uh, by this comedian named Dan Mintz was the voice of uh, of uh, 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 the eldest daughter in Bob's Burgers, whose name I forget now. But uh, oh, the joke, the jo so in case you don't know anything about Roman Polanski, so this is the joke. He was Roman Polanski lived an amazing life. He was a Holocaust survivor, and his wife was murdered by Charles Manson. Okay, Kaylee, stop it. You hear the cat this whole time? <laughs> uh, not the whole time, just, just now. But uh... Okay, shush. Uh, okay, let me start over here. Roman Polanski <laughs> lived an amazing life. He was a Holocaust survivor, and his wife was murdered by Charles Manson. And he raped a 13-year-old. And he is an award-winning director. I'd be happy with just one of those. <laughs> That's a pretty good joke. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know what? This movie... Well, clearly, it's a very polarizing movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, like Roman, like Roman Polanski is very polarizing. <laughs> yeah, I would say like, you know, I hated this movie so much, but I would prefer a movie that made me feel something, even if it's hate versus a movie that I just forget about. So congratulations, yeah. um, Quentin Tarantino. You did not make a boring movie. I will say that much. It, uh, it, it definitely gets a reaction from people. Um, yeah. And you know, I guess as an artist, that's a much better thing than just to be just to be forgotten. And I will not soon forget this movie. It has definitely burned into my brain. Um, okay, we are going to take a very short break, and after the break, we will come back and do our second segment where we discuss a topic plucked from the movie's themes. And this week, our topic is the fictionalization of real life events. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What up, what up, listeners? Welcome back to You Better Represent podcast. We are now in our second segment where we um, discuss a topic plucked from the themes of our movie of the week. And this week's movie of the week is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino. And our topic of the week is fictionalization of real-life events. And I'll throw it over to um, our resident writer-in-chief here, um, Leonard Chan. How do you deal with it when you're writing um, and you have to incorporate real-life events? Or how would you if you were if you needed to for a project? Um, well, I generally go with the mantra, uh, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. (laughs) So there's going to be parts that you can't change, uh, because they're critical to like the character or whatever. But even then, who cares? Like you can change whatever, like Quentin Tarantino, like, I mean, he fucking killed Hitler in a theater, uh, and the rest of the Nazi high command. Like, so... Whatever. You can do anything you want as long as it's a good story. Um, so there I am. Like I wrote, I remember like I wrote this movie once upon a time and it was a, uh, it was a historical, uh, like it was a biopic about a Russian agronomist, which I know sounds very exciting, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but basically it was this guy named Vavilov and he like, he was responsible for the first seed bank. He did all sorts of really interesting things. And I had to change a lot of things. Like, to make it suit, like, a story structure that, like, you know, was a lot more dramatic. And, like, I mean, so I took, like, the most dramatic parts of his life, but I had to, like, rearrange things, like, you know, Mm -hmm. rearrange timelines. But ultimately, like, when you're trying to, like, capture a story of a person, like, it's not about, like, the truth uh, in terms of facts. It's about the truth with a capital T, like, the essence of the story. Right, and even then, people get that wrong, and then people, and then that's where people really get mad if you like just really tell the story wrong. Yeah. Uh, but like you know, because like I watched, uh, you know, going back to this Bruce Lee thing, like I remember watch Ip Man. Yeah. So Ip Man, uh, you know, great movie, you know, with uh, Donnie Yen, and like he like fights off the Japanese, like it's this whole thing. I was like, yeah. none of that shit happened. <laughs> I mean, the dude, like, I studied under the, a guy who studied directly under Ip Man, right, when I was doing Wing Chun. And, like, he was saying, like, yeah, none of this, like, this is who Ip Man was, like, he did this, he did that, like, he was just this dude. And, like, none of that shit. And, of course, I was like, yeah. So they just, like, you know, they, like, turned him into this legend of, like, over four movies now, like, where none of this happened. Like, he's just a character. Based on a real person, but, like, you know whatever like the essence of it was really it's a really about a guy who brings Wing Chun to the mainstream that's the story that's the story like that's ultimately the essence of the story 
but now they're like turning into like he fights off the Japanese in a war and he like he like just he's like fighting gangs and he's like doing all sorts of stuff and I'm like well no so you know ultimately like just t- tell the story you want facts don't matter make them up if you need to take take what you need from real life make up what you need to and just plug it all into story that works Kaylee <laughs> stop it. <laughs> I'm oh. recording a thing. <laughs> cats just don't understand podcasts. Um, She's like podcasts. Podcasts? You say podcasts? No. I'm like, I I would be really sad if there was not a podcast that exists that's called podcasts because well, there just... was one. There was one. Uh, oh. Somebody else was doing it. I was on it oh, <laughs> momentarily, <really? laughs> just as a guest. Oh wow. Um, so it's kind of funny for me for like fictionalized, um, um, retellings and, you know, this comes up a lot with biopics, of course, in Hollywood and, you know, I'm definitely on the same page as you where, you know, you can take creative license. I do think there is like a certain level where you just say like, why, (laughs) like, why, like, why would you even, you know, do this? in in this particular movie so for me the one that really stands out to me is the is the queen biopic bohemian rhapsody where Mm. it literally has nothing to do with queen there's nothing like i i get creative license but when you literally take generic movie x with every trope ever and then just slap queen on it and it's like but none of those things actually have like i'm more of a like okay tell the story you want to tell but there must be a reason why this is like a queen movie or like it, 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 it went to the point of you're like, wait a minute, like this, it just, you could have just made another movie. Like it was just so out there with, with the facts. I just feel like it has to be great. Like at least get one thing, right? Like I feel like they got his name, right. <laughs> um, but yeah. you know, from like, you know, Everything from, like, their origin, you know, how they met, how they had to sell a van, even to, like, the live aid performance where, like, you know, at what point did he get AIDS? It was just, like, it just feels like after a certain point, it's not a biopic anymore. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, introduce fictional characters, combine multiple characters into one, you know, do shift around time and narratives, fine. Do whatever you need to do to tell a compelling story. But after a certain point, you're just sort of like, no, this is generic movie x and you inserted queen into it and you're just like they deserve more respect than that yeah yeah no i get i get that i mean like it's like yeah i mean it's it's an age-old question like you keep like taking stuff out and making a new sock at what point is it a new like (laughs) what point is it a new sock right yeah like if you've just removed so many things from reality that it's just like mostly fiction then that's it. Then then you just have to say, well, this is a work <laughs> based on real people, but, you know, it's mostly fiction. Yeah. Which is fine. Which is also fine, as long as it's entertaining, but, like, and, and you've, like, made it clear to the audience, like, don't believe this is true. It's like The Crown, right? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, like, the royal family's like, no! None of this is, what are you doing? <laughs> this is not true. So... Yeah, no, yeah. That, that, that's a great example with with, with with The Crown. And I think Netflix had to come out and actually say, you know, this is a work of fiction because people are getting really upset. Um, I feel like yeah. there's more, like, emotions about that in, in England than there would be here. I just watched it as, like, you know, this is a, a fun Netflix show. 
Um, another angle I wanted to take with this is, you know, it, of like fictionalizing real life is the stand-up comedy angle where we are kind of fictionalized versions of ourselves on stage. And some people, you know, and I, I think with both of us, we do tell like stories from our real life, um, as a lot of comedians do. Obviously, there's a lot of different styles of comedy. Some of them, they're totally a character on stage and has nothing to do with their real life. But, you know, it is interesting. It is interesting when the real life events you're fictionalizing are is your own life. And <coughs> the funny thing is for me with my comedy, I would say it's like ninety nine percent accurate. Like mm-hmm. probably mo- I adhere to it probably more than most comedians. Whereas like I don't have anything against flourishes. I just feel like for me, so much of my comedy is like authenticity and believability. And for me, I feel like the audience could tell if these things didn't happen. I don't know. It's just like a weird thing. It'll probably come out in my delivery. So like everything from, you know, from, you know, everything from like my gay volleyball team, super hard bottoms to my gay curling team, rice on ice to even, you know, the, the, um, the uh, the spelling errors I made when I was writing the obituary section, like literally everything happened. Um, I might fill in some details. I might skip some things, but um, you know, I can really only think of one piece of misdirection that I put in 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 my obituary material, um, where you know I sort of you know as a throwaway joke, I pretended like I, I ran over one of my customers, but. Like, I feel like I play it up to the point where it's clear that I'm not saying I'm depicting real life. But I feel like I stay away from that because I'm trying to come off as so authentic that if I do too much misdirection that's not actually what happened, I feel like I'll lose myself. So not as much for the audience. It's more as for me as a performer, I need to feel grounded in what I'm saying um, and so for me, it is like 99% like my real life stories, um, and also my real life opinions as well. So, um, I don't know how, how do you, how do you approach like fictionalizing your life for the stage, Leonard? Um, I, I do, tr- I do try to have it be as real as possible because I think audiences, especially like for, for up, I think audiences can can really sniff out inauthenticity. So, uh, I mean, that being, and, and so many times, like people come up to me afterwards, they're like, they, they won't believe this. Like, is your wife's name really Jackie? Like, is she Jackie Chan? Like, they just think that's a joke sometimes because it's so crazy. And I'm like, no, that's legit. That's like a thing. But also, like, people get mad. Like, because I can, like, people get mad if they, if you, if they think you're lying to them, mm. right? Like, because yeah. I, this is so funny. Like, I was on, um, I was in Windsor. And uh, I just did a show at, uh, at uh, uh, the Ford Theater or whatever it's called. Anyways, Chrysler, whatever, some car company. Anyways, I get out, and then uh, I'm walking down the street, and then I'm with this other Asian woman, because she, uh, she was actually the person who like booked this tour. And so we're just walking down the street, and uh, and then people came out of the show, and they see me like with this Asian woman. They're like, oh, well, that must be your actual wife, and you made up this Jackie Chan stuff. I was like, listen, like, if I'm standing next to an Asian, that doesn't automatically make her my wife, Windsor. And, oh my <laughs> and they're so pissed, because, like, my whole joke is, like, I married a white woman, her name is Jackie, and now she's Jackie Chan. And then they're like, no, you're clearly with this, like, 
Asian woman because you're standing next to her, so you must be married. I'm like, what the? F- Come oh. on. But like, people get mad. People get mad if like they feel like they've been lied to. So the trick is to like not stretch the truth so much that it's unbelievable. You know, like like there's bound, there's upper limits to where you can go with yeah. with that. If you're the type of comedian who wants to do that, I mean, obviously there's comedians for whom it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. I don't think anybody. I mean, I hope. I hope Anthony Jesenuk isn't dropping babies downstairs. <laughs> I hope. I mean, if he is, you know, <laughs> at least he's getting good material out of it. <laughs> so that baby died for a cause. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But yeah, like I, you know, like I think for for comics like us, like. I mean, for different comics, for different styles, or different levels of authenticity that you have to adhere to. Like, you have to kind of, like, make the rule. Essentially, like, any time, for any sort of storytelling, for any sort of art, like, you know, uh, we're, when we start, we're making a covenant with the audience. We're, like, yeah. we're establishing, these are the rules of this universe that I'm about to bring you into. Yeah. And, and once you've established those rules, you cannot break those rules. Mm. And so, like, so yeah, so, for, like, for, for comedians like Anthony Jesselnick, he will just say horrific things that aren't true. There's comedians, like, there's a comedian uh, uh, in Toronto, but he's, like, getting big around the world, Nick Nemiroff. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. Most of what he says is not true. Like, he's more of, like, there's, like, people like us who are, like, more closer to reality, and we deal in jokes that are closer to reality and about our lives and they're more anecdotal and this sort of thing. And then there's people like Nick Nemiroff, his jokes, he's like a theoretical, he's like a theoretical physicist when it comes to comedy. Like he's exploring comedy as a science, you know, where he's coming up, like it's just, it's very, like it's very abstract, you know, it's like the way theoretical physicists like will write equations about like stuff that you know we there's no way of empirically knowing if it's true yet. Uh, you know, eventually stuff gets proved, but like that's what he's doing, right? Mm. And then so then he, he is completely unbounded by like reality, really, and it's more again, this is the covenant I've made with my audience where I will say things that are obviously not true. That being said, they're funny as fuck. And as and that's yeah. the end of the day. Like at the end of the day, like it's our job to make people laugh. So do it how you in the best way you know how. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, the way that we do it. Um, like as long as it's funny, it's it's funny. But yeah, I do think you're right. It's I feel like it is off the top. It's sort of how you introduce yourself, and then based on that, the audience will understand what what the boundaries are. Of, yeah. Um, of 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 your style of comedy so yeah so you know there's definitely multiple ways to to do that um Mm -hmm. but yeah no definitely for me it's pretty accurate i think too because like so much of my so much of my comedy is like trying to like push boundaries um and it talks about like you know race and racism a lot of different things i feel like at that point, it's tough not to represent what I actually feel because mm-hmm. it'd be like, I don't know, like to make up, I don't know, it, it, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know how, 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 how to do it because it's already, um, I guess for me, I feel like if I'm going to get canceled or somebody gets upset at something I say on stage, I might as well be something I believe in. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Especially, and, and I think also, like if you're talking about, important topics right like race or whatever uh 
you can't lose credibility. Yeah. Or, <laughs> like it's super important. Like you have you maintain that credibility so you can talk about this stuff in a way where people are like, whether they agree with you or not, at least yeah. you know, like people can't dismiss you because they're like, oh, he made this stuff up. Yeah. Right? Because you might be saying something important, but like if you if you couch it in something that's like if you make up a story about you know, like some racist thing that happened to you or whatever, and it comes out that that's not true, then it completely undermines, like, everything else that you've been saying, which is kind of detrimental to, like, the mission that you, you're on. Yeah, like, I think, too, I feel like... I feel like it adds a degree of difficulty to delivering my material that makes it, like... At least, in my opinion, very difficult for somebody else to deliver that material. Um mm-hmm. Because for me, I've always said if somebody else can deliver uh, anything I write, then I don't even want it because it's just too generic if mm-hmm. like somebody else can take it. So even when it's not something as important as, say, you know, like racism or whatever, but it's like even, you know, I have this joke about, you know, how I how, you know, I have two nephews and one of the nephews is like uglier than the other one. But then he like eventually grew into um, not being as ugly as the other one. But like I feel like it'd be tough to steal that because like the audience has to believe that I actually think that my one nephew is ugly, but like you need that believability. And I do feel like it's a bit of a performance piece, but I don't feel like I could perform it if I didn't actually believe it. Like, you know, <laughs> or it, well, no, but I think it's important. I think that I think it is important, like, uh, to tell jokes from a place of belief. And then, like, as long as the underlying belief is consistent, then, like, you can, si- you can start, like, playing with the edges a little bit yeah. and making things up a little bit. Like, you could, like, describe your nephew or, uh, you know, that baby is, like, way more gross than he might actually be, <laughs> you know? But the, 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 the you know, like, the, the fundamental part of this is that you think that's an ugly baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, you know, another thing, too, is so early on in my career, my tagline was official spokesperson for um, young gay super cute Asians. So the thing is, when I first said it, um, it only worked because you could see the 20-year-old virgin me on stage actually believed I was super cute. And I know that 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 sounds really silly, but a lot of people will go up there and be self-deprecating um, and they'll say it in a self-deprecating way or they'll say it as a throwaway line. But for me, the character, you needed to believe that I was that full of myself, but was still likable. So I was trying to like, like walk this tightrope of like, can I be likably conceited? And so that's sort of like the edge I was trying to walk um, because that's how I was in real life. I was super cocky and conceited, but... I also had a lot of friends because I was very likable and I was trying to like project that on stage. And that's where I'm like, you know, I remember at the time, a lot of people were really worried about like other people stealing their jokes. And I was just like, you know, I was like, I was like trying to deliver these jokes. I was like, somebody try and steal this rice on nice bit. Like, I'm just like, you know, I just, just try it. Cause I, I don't think it'll come off the same way. Um, mm-hmm. And so and so, yeah, so for me, that's where I say, like, the, the authenticity is important because I'm trying to add that degree of difficulty in delivering my material where I feel like, you know, probably now somebody's going to take it as a challenge seeing this on the internet, some other gay Asian, and then they do my shit verbatim. Um, but uh, who knows? Uh, you know, there's always people who take things as a challenge. But 
I, I, I do think you need that authenticity. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, that was actually a, a really, you know, not, not that they're not all, you know, every, every, every episode. <laughs> but that was, uh, more so on the, when you're, when you're looking at the, the spectrum of, uh, actually insightful conversation, that was probably on the higher end. <laughs> yeah. That was a fascinating conversation. I think the movie review today as well, it was getting, cause obviously, so it's one thing for me to disagree with somebody on a movie because, as I mentioned previously, I'm a very conceited person and I just think people, most people are really dumb. So it's easy for me to disagree. But to hear from somebody like you, Leonard, who I actually respect, <laughs> it, I'm actually fascinated when you're like, oh, you really like this movie. Because I was like, because most people would be like, yeah, of course you like this movie because you're like stupid. But for you, I'm, I'm like, well, no, he, he's actually really intelligent and a good writer. So what am I missing here? So that was actually very fascinating. Um, yeah, doesn't mean you're well. missing anything. It's just I think things are just subjective. Like I also like a lot of real shit movies, and I probably <laughs> also hate a bunch of movies that you like. I mean, for example, uh, was that horrible Korean movie that like, I hated girl. so much? Was, 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 my sassy uh, girl. Yeah, my sassy girl. Hated it. Hated that movie. I mean, not not to the level of like, uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but like, dude, I did not like that movie at all. So it's like, you know, it's oh. it's all subjective, uh, and that's that's the beauty of this is like we can all be somewhat intelligent and have vastly differing opinions. Absolutely, absolutely. Hopefully, the world comes to a place where they can have vastly differing opinions and um well i, and I feel like we're there <laughs> <laughs> except it's just like yeah <laughs> uh except one side is definitely wrong so you know and that's and that's not the side i'm on <laughs> okay well on on that note um want to thank um all our listeners for um for for uh for listening um we'll we'll be back next week with yet another episode uh leonard will be back in a couple of weeks with our next Asian movie. Um, I'm your host, Vong Show, official spokesperson for gay, super cute Asians. And that's what's up. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network.